Okay, welcome to another uh, episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. This is actually the second, this is an extra one that we're doing because of all of the events here in uh, Israel uh, over the past week. And I'm really happy in this episode to be joined by my uh, friend and colleague at the Center for Security Policy in Washington, David Wormser. Uh, let's just put him on. Hey, David. How are you? Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for, for joining. I'll tell you, I, I mean, I gave him a basically, what about 15 minutes notice that we should do this show? And, and that's just what a mensch uh, uh, David is, that he was said yes. So, uh, and the reason why I wanted to talk to you uh, now is because you've written a couple of articles, uh, one of which I, I cited last week and another one I just sort of... Uh, I, I wrote about as well this week, which is um, the first article that you wrote about last week, which is the one that I wanna start with, is you were talking about how uh, the states of the Middle East or, or, or how the states of the Middle East view, the Arab states of the Middle East view America's uh, realignment away from the Sunnis and the Israelis and towards the Iranians. and. I want to get into your analysis, but first, I just want to get. I want you to uh, take this opportunity to explain uh, the thesis and the concept uh, that you think is animating the the soon the Saudis and the UAE, the Bahrainis, and and the Egyptians and others when they move now uh, towards trying to figure out how to deal with Iran uh, being empowered by by the Biden administration. <laughs> Well, one has to remember that the Saudis, as well as the UAE and Bahrain, and for that matter, Kuwait, although they, they, aren't, they aren't really uh, operating quite coherently at this point, but those other states, uh, they sided with the United States largely over the last 50, 7,500 years. And they're defined and in the region as American allies. Uh, maybe not quite the definition of an ally, ally I would have, but nevertheless, they are certainly in our camp. And in the Middle East, it's still very much traditional politics, which if you understand the way tribes interact and so on and so forth, clans, sects, uh, it's a battle for survival. And the survival ultimately means that you find strong allies to help you defend yourself uh, and and if you're weak, you're a weak tribe, you find a stronger tribe to form an alliance with uh, in exchange for which you're, you're somewhat loyal to them. But it, the other side of it is that the strong tribe is your umbrella, is your protector. What's happened against here- is, Against whom? Against, against the inherent enemies that are in the region. Uh, tribes always will have conflicts with other tribes and will always need allies and tribal alliances to deal with them. We've seen that for, for hundreds of years in the region. And it operates even on the state level. Uh, and and, and, and the, now in this case, the Saudis, of course, the UAE, of course, Bahrain, of course, their primary enemy is Iran. To some extent, it's also Turkey, but the primary enemy is Iran. And it is a much larger urban state, 100 million people almost, Saudi Arabia, UAE can't hold a candle up to them in terms of power. And so they need a patron, they need an umbrella. And that umbrella was the United States. So imagine for a moment, if your tribal leader, the, of, the, of the leader of the tribal league that you're in suddenly turns on you and hits a reset button and decides he's gonna start siding with your enemy. 
it, that means death to your tribe. Your tribe can't survive that. It's it's a it's a death warrant. This goes back to Muhammad when 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 Abu Talib, his uncle who protected him, lifted his protection. He had no choice but to flee to Medina from Mecca because that was a death warrant. So essentially, what the United States has done in regional terms right now is issue a death warrant for their allies. That's how it's understood in the region. And that includes Israel. Now, Israel doesn't think in tribal terms. It thinks the way a Western urban society does, uh, but it operates in the region. And so it, it is in the same place. So they say they, they view the Iranian threat to them. I mean, you wrote in your article that, that they are in a blood feud with Iran, that the Arabs view themselves as a blood feud, as in a blood feud with Iran. Can you just, can you just explain why that is? Why can't they make peace well, with the Iranians? What What is uh, the blood feud? How do you? On virtually every level. I mean, there's the Sunni-Shiite divide, but there's there's much older, deeper divides than that, which are Arab versus Persian. Uh, and then there's, there's the uh, current divide, which is the Iranian regime is a revolutionary regime that destabilizes every country around it and has attacked every country around it. And as a result, uh, they've also labeled the Saudi government as no longer f long for this world. In other words, they've, they've essentially expressed a regime change strategy in Saudi Arabia. They've occupied part of the UAE, the Lesser Tum Islands, uh, and they've threatened the UAE. And now they're actually acting on it. They're sending missiles and uh, uh, drones via the Houthis in, in Yemen onto Saudi Arabia uh, and onto Abu Dhabi on an almost daily or weekly basis. So this is not only expressed hostility, this is hostility upon which the Iranians are acting. And the expressed goal is to destroy the Saudi regime and destroy the UAE. And ultimately, as we know over and over again, this and the Iranians make clear, is the annihilation and extermination of Israel. So, so the Arabs, when they look at what the Americans are doing, just, just to underline what you're saying, you're saying that uh, they view American diplomacy towards Iran as a betrayal, and essentially that the United States is telling them that their lives are forfeit, that they're done. That is, that is exactly what they're telling them. They're basically saying we are lifting our protection and are trying to be either independent and, no, and, and neutral between these two uh, uh, factions, or actually hitting a reset button and redefining the region around the inimical faction, the Iranians. So yeah, we're, we're considered now having, like Abu Tlaib, lifted the protection on Muhammad and forfeit his life, essentially. Uh, so too, are we now lifting our protection on our allies in the region and forfeiting them to the quest to come to terms with an enemy, their enemy, that quite frankly calls for the elimination of the United States too. That's they, another aspect. But so that when they're looking at this, you, you, you mentioned how they sort of view their options. Now that they have been, now that their lives have been forfeit, now that they have been left to be destroyed by, by Washington in its uh, embrace of Iran and its nuclear weapons program and its, and its terror uh, proxies and armies. Um, how do they view their options? They're grim. 
one of their options is to try to find a new strong horse to protect them. And of course, there's only two other global forces they could turn to. Uh, one is Russia and the other one is China. So there's on one level a hope that somehow they could, they could help the Russians and the Chinese get out of the box that the United States is trying to put them in. And in doing so that they can lean on their ally, Iran, uh, to back off a bit, uh, at least to, to hold off. So it's a, it's, a, it's a Hail Mary pass, as we would say in the United States, uh, but, but a long shot, but it's the only shot they have right now. Uh, the, other the other hope they have is that Israel picks up the ball and that Israel asserts its power. They see Israel as an immense regional power, a strong horse sufficient to deal with the Iranian threat. So if Israel stood, stood up and, and stepped up to the plate, then the Saudis, the UAE would see another option. And I think that's the foundation of the summit, the intention of the summit uh, that you saw just, just last week. Was to, uh, yeah. But, but, you know, there, there, I mean, what I, I didn't take issue with, with you, I think that your analysis is spot on, which is of course why I want to talk about it with you and why I cited it last week. But um, there, before we go to it for a second, I want to, and, and charm and, and what I am concerned about with the UAE, I, uh, I want to take for a second, um, a moment and try to figure out, well, why can't they go with China or with Russia? I mean, the Saudis are, are selling oil to the Chinese and they're uh, selling it to them in Yuan, which is a clear assault on the petrodollars. Um, and the UAE and, and, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia are buying lots of weapons from them and from the Russians. The Egyptians are buying massive amounts of weapons from the Russians. So why can't they, why isn't that a viable option for them? Why aren't China- Well, actually at the moment, it is the option they're pursuing because they look at Israel and they're perplexed why the Israelis don't see things the way they do. They don't, they don't understand why the Israelis don't come to terms with the fact that they're on their own. Well, let's and let's not I, get, our, I, I want to move to that in a second, but I'm specifically, I'm asking about Russia and China. Do you think that for the Arabs, they are an option for- They are. They are because for the moment, there's an interest that Saudi Arabia can provide China, which is, uh, it, oil. it can, it, it oil, but more than that, to begin to, uh, help the Chinese realize their long-term dream of eliminating the petrodollar. Remember, so much of the American economy and the debt that America has is floated by the indispensability of the dollar in various areas, not the least of which is the petrodollar. So for China, in the long run, the destruction of the petrodollar is a very important national or uh, in a foreign policy goal. And if the Saudis provide them some sort of, uh, of uh, progress in that direction, uh, it's as important as the oil for them. So yes, the Saudis have something they can offer the Chinese and the Russians, the Saudis have a lot to offer. They can break the... I'm sorry, you, so, you wait, I'm sorry, you disappeared for a second with your internet connection. What, what can the Saudis offer the Russians and what can the Russians offer the, the Saudis?
So. Yeah, so what the Russians can offer Saudi Arabia or what the Saudis can offer the Russians is a breakout of isolation. They can trade, uh, they can trade uh, with rubles. They can offer the oligarchs a place to go. But just most importantly, as an American or still perceived globally as an American ally, they can, they can work with the Russians uh, uh, to, to display that Russia is not isolated. Another area where they can really hurt the United States, the Russians, via the Saudis, is to keep a cap on oil production which then will lead to greatly increased oil prices, both which help the uh, Russians because uh, they get a lot of revenue from oil. But secondly, it will tank the US economy and the Saudis very specifically right now uh, would like to get rid of Biden. They have said so openly and publicly at this point. So, and, and in that they probably share some sort of common interest with the Russians. So both are on the same page in terms of having oil prices go through the roof. Okay, so now let's just move for a second to Israel because um, you you argue in your in your um, in your article that Israel is well placed to be the new uh, strong tribe that can lead the region against Iran, and um, I I I, uh, I see that the uh, that the Israeli establishment completely opposes that position on the grounds that Israel is simply not strong enough to replace the United States as a regional power. And therefore, this entire discussion is completely uh, moot because, because the option of Israel replacing the United States doesn't exist. How do you respond to that view? Well, I mean, of course, they can't replace the United States entirely. The United States is a superpower any more than the Israel could have replaced Britain uh, in the 50s. It's so what not, can Israel do? I mean, it, well, it, what Israel can do is it, the question is not whether it can be a superpower on the same level as America, but it, does it have sufficient power to be a regional power and do what it has to do, which then would have an effect on the Saudis and the UAE and others. And in my my view, what you see in the Israeli military establishment, the uh, security establishment, is a post-Zionist ethic. Uh, imagine in 1948 if the young Israelis would have said, well, my God, how can we take on without clear American support, which was absent in 48, there was, yes, the vote in the UN, but there were no weapons or any real support from America. How can they take on the British? Because the British were fighting on the side of the Hashemites and the British then imposed the tripartite arms limitations to the region. So every single generation of Israelis had this choice to make. Will they take their own destiny into their own hands to defend themselves? Or will they wait for somebody else to save them? The latter of which never comes, which means it's destruction. So the Israeli security establishment is basically saying, unless we bring the Americans around, Israel's gonna be destroyed. And at the same time, they're not coming to terms with the reality that this administration has become toxic for what Israel needs to do to survive. You know, In other it's words, really admitting that Israel will be destroyed. You know, what's really it, it it's really it's really odd because um, I found myself in a conversation today with uh, with this man uh, Iran Etzion, who's sort of the quintessential voice of the Israeli uh, foreign policy establishment, and 
um, what he was was propounding was a sense of helplessness, of utter helplessness. He said that the best way to deal with Iran's nuclear program uh, is the JCPOA, and it was in 2015, and that Israel has no option for handling Iran and its nuclear program, and we can't overthrow the regime, so it's ridiculous to even talk about it, and there's nothing that we can do, and we can't possibly be the strong horse because we're too weak. So on every turn, they, they say, no, what we need to do is this, and then when, when presented with objective evidence that, in fact, the option that they claim is the best option is, is, a, is an existential threat to Israel, um, they just brush you off as, as being, uh, you know, uh, over-enthusiastic or, or whatever, just because, you know, as far as they're concerned, Israel is completely helpless and hopeless. And um, so I think that this really brings us to what, to the Sharm el-Sheikh conference last week, right? Because it was a really weird conference because it just sort of happened overnight. Hosni Mubarak is hosting the UAE and Israel. Uh, leaders, uh, um, uh, MBZ, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Zayed, the uh, crown prince of the UAE, and Naftali Bennett, Israel's uh, uh, prime minister. And um, so first I want to start with uh, what it could have happened and then move to MBZ's really weird um, uh, offer or or ask at the conference, which was to rehabilitate uh, Syrian leader uh, Bashar Assad, who is an Iranian proxy. Um, and so uh, first talk about, uh, for a second, let's talk about what that potential might've been at the conference last week. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you juxtaposed the Sharm el-Sheikh conference with the Negev summit, the latter of which had the American presence, the Sharm right. el-Sheikh one did not. What you saw coming out of Sharm el-Sheikh were three serious nations planning together on how to deal with the series of crises. And at the end of which, essentially project or launching into what was going to be a larger summit that would involve Morocco and Bahrain as well uh, to create a strong regional structure that deals with the absence of American power or even the hostility of American power. Uh, and, and so you saw that derailed fundamentally by the United States. And it was an intentional derailing. Are you talking about, it was uh, derailed negative, this week negative. at the negatives, but I'm talking about, I wanna stay for a second on last week because I think it points to something very disconcerting about uh, the potential for uh, the, the potential direction that the uh, UAE may be going. Um, so, you know, what you were saying was that this could have been the beginning of a regional alliance structure with uh, Egypt and Israel and the UAE as the principal leaders of it, say. Um, but then MPZ brought in this thing, which ended up being the main topic that they discussed, at least in the readout to the media, which is that he wants for Bashar Assad to be brought back into the Arab League. And I wrote about this in my column last week because I find this very disturbing. Is while the while the UAE and Saudi Arabia both view rightly as uh, uh, as them as their kingdoms being in a blood feud with Iran, and it, it, that is to the death. 
Um, the UAE is also Iran's uh, main trading partner, certainly in the region, and I think that it's second only to China in the world. Um, and so there's there's a lot of contradictory uh, moves that the UAE makes in relation to Iran. And then MBZ's uh, entree, where he said, oh, well, what we really need to do is rehabilitate Bashar Assad, bring him back into the Arab League, uh, Syria and, and Assad were expelled from the Arab League in 2011 uh, because they were committing genocide against Syria's Sunni population. Um, and Saudi is saying that they have to be brought back in from the cold. And he gave this, this argument that I thought he himself had to know was a joke, which was that, oh, uh, it's true that uh, Bashar will never completely abandon Iran, but we can empower him against Iran if we bring him into the Arab League. And it's so absurd that I thought that what he was really doing was providing an entree to Iran to become a dominant force inside of the Arab League, meaning that he was trying to make a separate peace with Iran at Israel's expense. I don't know if it was at Israel's expense. It was definitely a misstep. I think from their point of view, they're looking at the Ukraine situation and they believe that Russia has been pretty significantly weakened. And they believe that Assad is looking at that and is terrified and is afraid that his patron, his protector, is in a very weak position. So as a result, uh, they think there may be an opportunity to wrench uh, Assad away from the Russian orbit and, and, and seek a path to survival by coming to terms with Israel and coming to terms with them. I think it's entirely unrealistic uh, partly because uh, Assad has no choice but to stay with that, number one. Number two, I'm not sure the Russians uh, emerged as weak as we think they have, or even as the Arabs think they have. And third of all, the, Assad has another option, which is to become more dependent on Iran. I mean, it was, he was completely dependent on Iran until the Russians came in in 2015. Correct. And, and he can go back to being completely, uh, completely dependent and on Iran. And it's not as though Russia is going to leave its, uh, its, its uh, eastern Mediterranean uh, airfield and port anytime soon. So right. I don't understand why this analysis well, would be... One thing I've found dealing with the UAE is they don't understand the Levant. They... They are perplexed with the Palestinians. They don't like the Palestinians at all, but they don't really understand their politics or what's going on. They, they're really quite uninformed about some of the goings on in the, and they don't know the subtleties and the dangers. You see, the real danger of this offer of, of uh, <coughs> mediating with Assad is that the Americans will pick up on it as a new peace process. And then all of a sudden, you'll see very rapidly, more faster than you can even, even realize it's happening, uh, an American push that would be the Golan for Iranian uh, removal from not only from Syria, but just from the border areas of Syria with Israel. So Iran for, is for the Golan. And you that don't think that the UAE happen. understood that this was the implication of what they were saying? You think that, that they're I that think, out of touch? Because I mean... I I think to some extent they didn't think it through, but it also indicates that they're kind of desperately flailing. They're giving an impression of being calm and in control. But I think behind the scenes, what you're seeing is the UAE and the Saudis flailing.
they're they're reaching out at everything without thinking it through they're really desperate at this point it's it is like a drowning man reaching for anything he can reach this is a non-starter though and i think that uh the israelis uh need to make it very clear in some symbolic way that the Golan in any circumstance, in any possible way, is no longer a negotiable issue. So in other words, I, I would just to shore up the answer to whether there's some peace deal that America can now seize onto to throw Israel back on its heels, I would, I would escalate uh, and accelerate Israeli settling of the Golan Heights right now. All right, well, uh, uh, all right, Let, let's, uh, well, I mean, I guess in a way you're, you're kind of, uh, you're, you are assuaging my fears about the UAE because um, uh, I think that that was really quite a, uh, an aggressive move by them. And you think that it was mainly a testament both to their desperation and fear. And it, it, it might also have had another purpose, and this is a dangerous purpose because we're seeing the Saudis writing articles in an Israeli paper saying, America's not your friend. You have others lambasting the Israelis for not realizing how alone they are. This could be a signal, uh, uh, if they are on top of it, this could be a signal to Israel that, look, we made our choice to side with you because we looked at you as the strong horse, as the tribe. If you lose your way and you act weak and you don't stand up to the Americans uh, uh, on the issue of Iran and you don't stand up to the Americans to defend your interests, then you become worthless for us. Well, and I think that that was actually um, in a way uh, expressed uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the Negev summit uh, uh, this week uh, on, uh, on Tuesday. I think that that sense of frustration and a disgust um, with the Israeli response to the American Hostility and betrayal uh, was very much uh, was very much uh, uh, in evidence in the Arab uh, statements at uh, at the Negev conference um, uh, at Stabokar on on Monday and Tuesday, uh, um, and I think maybe we should just uh, without further ado move to that. You wrote a second article this week about uh, your concerns about really how Israel just. Um, I don't know, uh, shot itself uh, uh, in the head uh, with this conference. And, and uh, uh, I, I've also written and, and spoken about this on Israeli television and uh, wrote about it in my, in, my, in my latest article in Israel. But uh, why, don't you, why don't you start it with your analysis? Well, yeah, I mean, what, what Israel's big misstep is, is, again, the region has decided that current American policy and this team dealing with Middle East policy in the White House and in the State Department is toxic and hostile. And the, the frustration building in the Arab world with Israel's security establishment, A, because they're still uh, believing that they can't act without the United States, but second of all, they do things that embarrass the UAE and the Saudis and, and, and Bahrain. For example, this whole Saudi thing that um, Defense Minister Gantz, uh, sorry, the Palestinian thing that Defense Minister Gantz launched. He wanted to have King Abdullah of Jordan, who is essentially now the champion and the advocate for the Palestinian Authority, and the PLO, uh, Abbas, coming to this summit, which would have made it a gang rape of Israel, to be honest. 
what would what what is so dangerous about that is it embarrasses our Arab uh, uh, partners because here's the United States coming to a, a meeting with an Israeli defense minister taking a more pro-Palestinian line than they do. This is a shaming effort, and they can't react to that shaming effort other than to to go along. Well, you so know, in a way, and and this is and this is what I wrote about in 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 my in my latest column, and I was talking about the, you know, the rise uh, of the two-state uh, chimera, right? Because uh, you had these um, final uh, statements by all of the Arab foreign ministers of the four Arab states that came, uh, along with Blinken, and um, and they and they were all talking about the need to uh, solve the Palestinian conflict and establish through the two-state solution with a Palestinian state that has its capital in Jerusalem, and um, so that uh, be, and and so that Blinken, I mean, he used the two-state solution to undermine the Abraham Accords. He used the two-state solution to to empty of meaning of, of strategic significance, the alliance that has been built around opposition to Iran uh, between the Israelis and the Sunnis. And he transformed this meeting, which was supposed to be, you know, at best, right? Uh, the five uh, foreign ministers of Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Egypt, all standing up to Blinken and saying, stop betraying us with Iran. What are you doing? This is crazy. We're not gonna accept this. Um, instead, it became Blinken with the four Arab foreign ministers ganging up against Israel and saying, you have to give Jerusalem to the PLO. So he didn't need guns. He did it all on his own. Yeah, but yeah, well, Blinken did it on his own, but you see, the Israelis could have done, it could have turned this into an opportunity. Um, specifically, this started before the summit. This started when Blinken came and Bennett and Blinken had a joint news conference. And Blinken blasted the Israelis and said, uh, well, it started with Ambassador Nidus with his famous uh, Israel shouldn't do stupid things type stuff. Um, meaning to, settlements. To, to peace now, a radical anti-Israel yeah. pro-Palestinian group that he met with uh, uh, last week, I think it was. And then it continued with Blinken in this press conference upon his arrival in Israel, where he listed essentially the stupid things, which are that Israel, uh, settler violence, <laughs> you know, here we have every day uh, uh, settlers attacked on the roads with Molotov cocktails and rocks, and we have huge amounts, unfortunately, of uh, more violent, lethal attempts. And now in the last week, we've had, a, had probably the most lethal week in 20 years in Israel. And yet he finds settler violence to be the thing to focus on. The, the missed opportunity is right then and there, right. had Bennett put down his foot and looked the American Secretary of State right in the eye and, and put him in his place and said, I'm sorry, but settler violence, while a problem, and while I condemn it, and while my government as a rule of law government pursues the people who do it, we are dealing with a wave of daily incitement attacks uh, that lead to Jewish people being killed in volumes that eclipse by multitudes anything the Jews do. You know, uh, I just now, think it's worth, it's worth just pointing out the uh, numbers. Uh, I see this Jewish press write up of the uh, of the press conference that I was using uh, 
when I was writing my column. But uh, so it says here, uh, so-called settler violence, a lie chanted ad nauseum as part of an organized delegitimization campaign by the Israeli left and funded by foreigners. So it says by, there were 902 Arab terrorist attacks on Israelis in the short period between March 2021 and September 2021, not including 4,500 rockets and mortar shells fired at Israeli civilians by Gaza's ruling Hamas terrorist organization during its war in Israel in May 2021, and not including subsequent attacks from Gaza. One person was killed, 10 more Israelis were wounded, including several with serious injuries in that five-month period. Yeah, it's, just, it's, you can't compare. No. I mean, it's like last year during the missile attacks that you were talking about, there was this uh, uprising of Israeli Arabs right. uh, shooting and killing Jews. And lynching. And lynching Real pogroms. What we, you know, what we thought we had run away from in Eastern Europe suddenly appeared in the streets of Lod and Ramla and Akko and Jaffa and so forth. Yeah. And, and, and yet everybody tried to say, well, both sides need to stop the violence. But there were one or two cases of frustration where Jews responded to Arabs. There were hundreds of cases, hundreds and hundreds of cases and fatalities of Jews uh, by by Arab violence. There was no balance there. This is it, there's it, never it, any balance. And 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 what's, what's most balance. stunning about uh, Blinken's this, comment? But what said, Blinken did was an attempted humiliation of Israel to throw it on the defensive by focusing on settler violence. Well, this, look at, by I the mean, way, looking after at, the Beersheba terror attack. Right. So there are two things that I want to just add to that, just to just to like round out your point. So he, I just um, first of all, uh, I, I want to talk about what he said because what he said was so hostile. So first of all, he said that he was going to go later that day and meet with PLO chief Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. But he said he was also going to meet with the Palestinians of Eastern Jerusalem and their communal leaders. So here you saw the Secretary of State standing next to the, Israel, the, president, the Prime Minister of Israel and calling into question Israel's sovereignty over its capital city simply by saying that. And then he yeah. went on, then he continued. So that was the first thing that he said that was incredibly hostile. And then he said uh, that uh, that both sides had to work to prevent actions or actions on all sides that could raise tensions uh, during uh, the month of Passover and Easter and Ramadan. And this includes settler expansion, settler violence, incitement to violence. So that's two that he's alleging that Jews do, right? Settler expansion, settlement expansion and settler violence. The third thing that he says is incitement to violence. That's presumably Palestinian. And then he says demolitions. So that's Israel destroying Palestinian homes. That's evil, right? Payments to individuals convicted of terrorism. So that's actually against American law, right? That's what the PA does. They spend between six and 8% of their annual budget paying blood money to terrorists who are sitting in Israeli jails and to the parents or in families of dead terrorists who were killed while conducting terrorist operations. And the United States has now renewed just carte blanche half a billion dollars a year to the Palestinian Authority. So the United States US taxpayers are essentially funding this. And then he says uh, payments to individuals convicted of terrorism and then evictions of families from houses they've lived in for decades. So here he's going against the Israeli legal system because you have illegal Arab squatters who have been living in Jewish-owned homes in Jerusalem 
since the time that these homes were being illegally occupied by Jordan in the 1950s and 60s. And since 1970, Israeli, the Israeli homeowners have been trying to get back their homes. And it's been tied up in the courts and they're finally about to get it. And the Americans went ballistic and said, you mustn't allow Israeli courts to respect the property rights of Jewish homeowners in Jerusalem. You have to instead grant control over in perpetuity of these homes, of these buildings to the Arabs who have been, they or their descendants who have been illegally squatting in these homes that are owned by Jews since, uh, since the time that these areas were illegally held by Jordan. So all of these things are just incredible swipes at Israel. And this is what Blinken did. So there are two things that the Palestinians did, and I think four or five that Israelis have done. So Israel is responsible for the terrorism. And the other thing that was so appalling by what he said was that he first, he, he, he sort of gave this uh, condemnation of the attack that had happened the previous day in Beersheba, where you had four Israelis who were murdered by an Israeli Arab Bedouin. Um, and then he said, we need to have this two-state solution thing. But the involvement in terrorism by Israeli Arabs is yet another proof that the two-state solution is just an anti-Israel and indeed anti-Semitic policy. Because what it says is that, you know, we're going to, we can limit the Arab conflict, the, the Arabs of the land of Israel, their conflict with the Jewish state, we can limit it by giving them a, a, a secrete amount of land, that there's an upper limit to their demands on Israel, and therefore they can be appeased while Israel continuing to exist. But when you see the involvement of Israeli Arabs in the actual fighting in carrying out terrorist attacks against Israel or pogroms and riots like we saw in, in, in May, um, then you realize that this isn't true, that if you establish a second Arab state west of the Jordan River, after all, we have an, an independent Palestinian state in, in the Gaza Strip, and we've had it since 2005. Um, if you do a second one in Judea and Samaria and in Jerusalem, that isn't going to be the end of the conflict. That's going to just move the center of gravity of the conflict from Judea and Samaria or Jerusalem to where it's already becoming the center of gravity of the conflict, which is the Galilee and the Negev and the Dan region, where Arabs are going to, Arab Israeli citizens are, are, are attacking their Arab Israeli Jewish neighbors. So this, is, this has all been proven a lie. And yet here is Blinken coming to Israel in the middle of a, of a massive uh, wave or onslaught of Arab Israeli and Palestinian Arab terrorism against Israeli Jews. And he is attacking Israel and he's demanding that Israel uh, endanger itself by denying it the right to self-defense against these attacks while he's pretending to condemn them. Oh, absolutely. You know, about that list that he gave, the two things he said about the Palestinians, the incitement and the uh, and the payments to terrorists, uh, the pay for slave program. I would just add both of them are funded by the United States. So he's asking the Palestinians not to do something that the United States itself is now funding. Uh, so we're the problem. The United States is the problem here. We're giving money to the PA to pay the terrorists. So he's not he's not even it's it's empty it's hollow the only meaningful stuff he said was the attacks on israel and second of all the offensiveness of trying to compare in <laughs> a jewish home with uh, what happened in bnei brock yesterday by the way he never explicitly uh uh, uh 
in that list that you gave of things he demanded from the two sides, in there was not. I mean, it, it, there's this myth that the PA doesn't engage in terrorism. The PLO doesn't engage in terrorism. Although the guy in Bnei Brak yesterday was a member of Fatah. Right. Fatah. So, you know, what was it? Well, we can't expect him to condemn that uh, before it happened. At the same no, time, the condemnation... No, but there are other he... Fatah members who've done attacks over the last year. The, the PA and, Arf and, and, and Muhammad Abbas and the Palestinian Liberation Organization continue to be a terrorist organization. Just because it was waived, all these things in, in, in the Oslo Accords, doesn't make them less... No. what they always were. So, so, so the Arabs saw, right, the Arabs who, who were coming to stable care or were maybe already were there, or no, they were on their way to Israel to, to do this Negev summit when Bennett has this meeting with, with uh, um, Blinken. And Blinken says all of these incredibly obnoxious things. He yes. said similar things in his meeting with uh, Lapid, although there he was simply defending the Iran nuclear deal, which of course... Uh, puts uh, Israel and and the Arabs in existential peril. But he saw that in both cases, Lapid and Bennett said nothing. And they didn't stand up for Israel when Blinken was making these uh, incredibly hostile statements uh, while he is their guest in their home. So uh, how do you think that the Arabs took this? Well, they're following this and they've been following for weeks and months. What's, what's the internal Israeli discussion? And what they see is that, in, in specific, what happened uh, last uh, last few days, they see the American colonial overlord coming to dress down its its subject, and the subject very weakly and meekly stands there and takes it. This is supposed to be the strong horse. Israel is supposed to be the strong horse, and they behave like the I hate to say it, like the old Galut Jew. The old Galat Jew who was so afraid of the attack that he just quietly kept his head down. And this is exactly the way the Israeli government behaved. And overall, what the, what the Arabs have been seeing over the last few weeks is this constant harping on settler violence by the US government and the constant repetition of the self-immolating accusation by Israeli leaders, whether it's Bar-Lev, whether it's minister. Gantz, Exactly. So, that, you know, they they see the Israelis acting like the Galut Jew who was weak and is not a dependable ally. So they come to the summit and they're shamed into saying what they have to say. You know, the Israelis are, gen, are again, it was an opportunity for Israel if it had acted strong and done a Begin moment in front of Blinken and said, we are not a colonial vassal. I forgot the words that Begin said, that famous dressing We're not down. a banana republic. That's what We're not saying. a banana republic, exactly, to Sam Lewis, mm -hmm. and then leaked that. Now, that was done more in private and then leaked. This is, this is in public, should have been done. We are not a banana republic. We have our interests, and we are, we are a nation of laws and will not be lectured to. If he had done that in front of Blinken, that would have sent such a message of strength to the Arabs that would have, it would have transformed then. It was a big mistake to even have Blinken there, but if he's already gonna be there, it could have turned into what 
what the opposite of what it was. Instead of being uh, a gang rape of Israel with all the statements of expression of support for two-state solutions in Jerusalem as the Palestinian capital, blah, 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 it would have been a unified attack on the United States for having lost its mind in the Middle East. The dynamic would have been different, but only, only if the Israeli government would finally begin to understand that it, it sits uh, in a hostile, uh, that the United States government is hostile right now to the Israeli uh, interests. Uh, and unfortunately, the behavior of all of them, and I didn't mention guns, but guns is perhaps most egregious in this. Let's talk I mean, about that for a second yeah. before, we, before we start uh, 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 moving on. How, how, what do you see? I mean, Gantz, uh, he met with Abu Mazen, or he was supposed to. He met with uh, King Abdallah. He's, um, he's giving Area C of Judea and Samaria, which is supposed to be the area that uh, Israel controls in perpetuity because it's all the area around you know, all of the Israeli communities in Judea and Samaria. Uh, it's the military installations at the border zone with, with Jordan. It's all of the areas that Israel requires uh, after it gave uh, areas A and B, which about 40% of Judea and Samaria to the PLO in the framework of the uh, Oslo Accords. And that is the Palestinian autonomy that's been operating in Judea and Samaria since 1994 and in 1996 was expanded. So, um, here he is, he's giving all of this open land that's basically transforming the Israeli communities, including my own and Efrat, from thriving uh, blocks of uh, settlements uh, into, uh, into uh, increasingly um, uh, threatened areas that are, are surrounded by illegally constructed uh, Palestinian enclaves. Well, he's doing, he's doing that, uh, which is one of the two great strategic failures of Israel right now. The first is not to understand that there's a battle going on on the ground, over ground. Area C was areas that even the Rabin government understood were so indispensable to Israeli security that Israel has to maintain full control over them. And yet these are the areas now that are in battle. Again, the Europeans and the Americans are funding the construction and the intrusion and the violation, by the way, of the Oslo Accords, uh, but through this Palestinian construction in Area C. Uh, so, and, and now the Israeli government is taking essentially a passive line on that. So here is literally the movement of armies. These, these population, uh, uh, settlements and 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 arab palestinian and israeli settlements essentially are battles right. that are moving to claim territory and israel has decided to withdraw and to uh, not engage in this and the, and the west is, is funding the uh, palestinian side so that is a major strategic failure and the israelis will wake up one day and realize that they have a demographic problem in areas that are critical to their security uh, in a big way now, I'm not as big a fan in, of the two-state solution. In fact, I think the Israelis should, should publicly declare it to be an unfeasible option, at least at the moment. But this certainly renders the two-state sol solution unworkable because Israel could not accept any of the security arrangements that emerge on the basis of these new realities being created in, in Area C. 
and it also makes uh, the viability of Israeli presence and Jewish presence in, in, in Judea and Samaria more and more difficult and dangerous. So it could begin to undermine the, the existing presence already of Jewish communities. The second big failure is that uh, Gantz has essentially taken the post-Zionist line that we're, if not with the grace of America, nothing will happen. And, and he subordinated, and I've seen this trend ever since the war of attrition and I've written about this, of, of exchanging Israeli autonomy and strategic maneuver for America. We should actually just point out that we've had a discussion about this in the, in the Carolyn Glick Middle East uh, News Hour. Uh, in the past, people can go back to our, our previous episodes uh, where I'm talking with David specifically about this issue if you want more information. Yes, and, and now the problem with this security concept is it's self-fulfilling. Namely, the more Israel restrains itself on behalf of American demands, the weaker it becomes and the more it depends on America as a result. I think the 73 war was one of the best examples. Israel knew a couple hours before the war that it was going to break out and had an off-the-shelf uh, uh, preemptive airstrike ready to go. And the decision was made for the necessity of American support, Israel will forego that initial airstrike. The course of the war could have been very different and there may be thousand or two more living Israelis uh, from that period today than there were. Uh, it was just, it was an awful decision. And uh, yes, it got the Americans to resupply Israel, but they wouldn't have needed the resupply if they had preempted and set the agenda of the war to begin with in a different direction. So I think it's a microcosm of the larger thing is now with Iran and so forth. It's the American dream to have Iran get out of control so that Israel has to be fully dependent on an American umbrella, including a strategic nuclear umbrella. It, it essentially finally and completely subordinates Israel into an American vassal. You and know, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Gantz is uh, the head of his uh, political military staff, this uh, man named Zohar Palti, uh, was the latest Israeli general to get a very strange award from the Pentagon. They seem to just cart them into Washington one after the other, give them awards. And then Zohar Palti just gave an interview to Haaretz. I think this it may have even come out uh, this week where he was saying that uh, uh, America is Israel's most important strategic resource. We can't do anything uh, without it. Uh, that it, yes, that it, and that from, and that Israel's strategic doctrine in Israel's strategic doctrine, the United States is the most important uh, foundation of Israeli strategic right. uh, security. So, so that this is this is a, a strategic doctrine, if it can even be called a doctrine, of utter and complete dependence on, on the Pentagon and on Washington. Israel's greatest strategic intelligence failure of all time is its inability to understand the United States. So it is, at one on one side, hanging more and more and more of its existence and the viability of its existence on American support, a mistake in my view, but doing that, then they don't understand. It would America. be a mistake even if the United States was That's supportive right. of Israel because exactly. no country can make its existence dependent on another country. Well, and expect and then, then the other thing is that it undoes, it, they don't understand the United States on top of it all. And they don't understand that that 
undoes American support. Why? Because look, I, this is not a discussion on Ukraine, but one thing is clear to, that, that came out of Ukraine. Nobody in the world was gonna defend Ukraine on February 24th. Nope. What happened was that Zelensky stood up and said, I will not surrender. And he captured the imagination of Europeans and Americans. And all of a sudden, there was this, this wellspring of support for Ukraine that pressured their governments, which had already prepared their eulogies for Ukraine and had already prepared their Ukraine uh, memorials. Uh, suddenly, they were forced to begin to supply weapons to Ukraine. Israel has to understand that if it decides something is so important that it will act alone if necessary, that is what secures American support. Because the Americans like people who will fight for themselves, then they'll join and help them. But if Israel takes the policy of we're dependent on you, we need you, you need to do this with us or for us, the very dependency that they've created then rests on an America that will look at Israel as a loser and distance itself from it. So it's it's a prescription for a meltdown. And it's, it's uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but it's, it's, it's a reflection of a not, uh, they don't understand America. This administration will not be brought around. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party has taken over the various positions that have power over Middle East policy, other policy too. But specifically, you cannot look at Mali, you cannot look at Hedy Amar, you cannot look at uh, Bitar, uh, and so forth, and not Colin say, Cal, you can't look at any of them. You can't look at it and say, this is not the progressive wing, the BDS wing of the Democratic Party who's in charge. So the allies of Israel in America are outside the administration and their policy shouldn't be to convince the administration. Their policy is to, should be to reach around it to appeal directly to the American people. And you can only do that, Israel can only do that if it, it answers the image of America that most Amer of Israel that most Americans have, which is a tough, gritty group of people who are willing to fight for what they believe in and will stand on their own and, and do it on their own if they have to. That is being undermined by guns and the whole security establishment in Israel. And also this entire government. I mean, to, to be the fair, the entire government. The image of Bennett standing there quietly while being dressed down like a parent dressing down a two-year-old, quietly sitting there with his head down is the image. I agree. I mean, and it wasn't just that. It was also him sort of uh, looking like a lap dog when Blinken gave him a couple of words of praise for his uh, ridiculous and incredibly reckless and stupid, I think, uh, mediation or attempts to mediate uh, between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, it, it was like this little this little, you know, thing that was just desperate for praise. It was desperate for somebody to tell him that he did a good job. It was, it was horrible. Um, but the whole thing has just been horrible. So, I mean, what we're seeing today. That we live for the approval of, of the, the rest of the world, but not understanding that it, A, anti-Semites will never like us and B, the rest will like us if we act with self-respect. Uh, I think, you know, in, in a way, the, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that anything will, will, will change because of, of the sort of uh, 
uh, I, I don't know what you would call it, a covenant of losers that stands at the basis of this uh, coalition that everybody understands that they cannot face the voters again for the foreseeable future. And therefore, they will continue in, you know, they will keep this government going, even if it puts Israel into a death spiral. But um, I think that, uh, um, you know, the, the onslaught, the murder of uh, Jews by, uh, by Israeli Arabs, uh, when you have the Muslim Brotherhood Party inside of the coalition, meaning that there's absolutely no way that they're going to do anything just for that reason, but also because you have people like the Minister of Internal Security that's responsible for the police, Omer Barlev, who is an anti-Zionist, who said after the attack on Beresheva, it was just reported today, uh, he gave a, a Zoom call with uh, labor supporters, and he said that he was in a big fight with the uh, with the chief of staff of the army, Aviv Kochavi, because Aviv Kochavi uh, doesn't think that the military should be putting its uh, resources into fighting uh, Jewish community uh, members in Judea and Samaria. And he thinks that settler violence, as Blinken said, is the gravest threat to peace in the Middle East. And so he would like to uh, put more resources on it. But uh, Aviv Kochavi, the chief of staff of the IDF, insists on fighting terrorists instead of Jews who the terrorists want to kill. Um, so that was that was a stunning thing that just came out today. But I mean, every day, there's like a daily bar lev that comes out, you know, another statement that's completely anti-Israel, anti-Jewish and pro-terrorist. And he is in charge of Israel's police at a time when the police themselves, because the violence is taking place uh, where, the where the army does not generally operate, which is inside of the armistice lines from 1949. Um, uh, they are on the front line, and we've seen most, you know, many of the casualties over the past week have been police officers. So, including non-Jewish police officers who, you know, the two of the police officers who were killed, uh, for, the first one in Hadera and the second one uh, in Bnei Brak, uh, were, were non-Jews. One was a Druze in Hadera, and the other one was a Christian uh, in Bnei Brak. So, uh, you know, he's just a, a disaster, but it's all over this government. And, and frankly, I mean, I don't want to belabor that point, but, you know, I think I think that that what we're saying is that this government has to fall, that in order to save the Abraham Accords, to maintain Israel's or to rebuild Israel's strategic alliance with with the Arabs, which is now fraying because of the weakness of this government. Um, and the only way that Israel can actually stand up to an American administration that is so hell bent on undermining and 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 harming the Jewish state is to get an, a government that both recognizes the dangers and is equipped to actually manage them. Yeah, look, I mean, it all boils down to one thing: Will Israel assert itself to defend itself and its interests independently, if necessary, uh, which it is. It, everything then falls to the place if Israel does that. It will uh, re reset its relations with the Arabs, who will then respect Israel. It would reset Israel's relations with the American people, who will see in Israel's behavior what they long thought mythologically was the great Israeli character. The, the, it will... Even move toward the Europeans who now suddenly have shown some respect for people and nationalism that that tries to defend itself against those who will commit genocide or destruction. So 
you know, Israel would find itself in a very strong and, and uh, broadly supported position regionally and globally if it just acted on its own and asserted itself with self-respect. Uh, the, the, this government so far has shown itself entirely incapable of doing that. And that is leading to the inverse result. It is beginning to question the uh, Abraham Accords. At this point, it's really the UAE carrying forward the Abraham Accords, not Israel, because the UAE, despite everything, still sees some utility in siding with Israel and a lot of hope still. But the longer this goes on, you will see the Saudis and others say not only that the Biden administration is a problem for Israel, but that the current Israeli government is a problem for the for the Arabs as well. So this weakness is not going to end well. And unfortunately, I think this this terror wave is not only a function of the uh, American hostility that's being expressed to allies and the confidence it gives to America and Israel's and the Arabs enemies. It, it is it is also a reflection of an appreciation of an Israeli passivity and weakness. You know, I, I think uh, uh, my, my friend and, and yours, I dare say, uh, Lee Smith, I saw that he, he, he has come out and said what he thinks, which is that the, the Biden administration is an occupation government, that it is a hostile government, it's hostile to the United States. All of its actions that it's taking, and I think it's admit whether it's transgendered uh, admirals or ending uh, fossil fuels, siding with Iran against the U.S. and its allies, and, you know, uh, threatening, essentially goading Russia into war, which the Russians are now very clearly threatening to use nuclear weapons in, and all of these other things that the, the, the Biden administration is doing. You can just add more domestic policies, whatever you want to. You can add the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the other thing you want to. Um, this is a government that is... is it's impossible to just be that stupid. I mean, it has to be a malice of forethought that they're doing this to the United States. Um, and, and that was his argument. And, I, and I'll just say, you know, that the problem with the Israeli progressives is that, like you said, they fundamentally don't understand the United States at all. I mean, they can't stand the evangelicals because they're, they, they are atheists, you know, and they don't want to be, uh, they don't want to be what Israel is, which is the homeland of the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people from biblical times forward. And, um, and they think that if Israel reflects the values of the progressives, that the progressives are going to like us. And so they, you know, they, we have this, uh, we have a, a gay health minister who's trying to get, uh, um, all of these transgender um, uh, medical um, hormonal treatments uh, approved uh, and uh, through through the socialized medical system, and you have um, everybody wanting to talk uh, more and more about affirmative action for Arabs and for women and for gays, and uh, and attack Jewish nationalists right, left, and center to try to show their bona fides as progressives to the Americans. And what they fail to understand is that intersectionality of the progressive camp in the United States is inherently, it must be anti-Semitic. So that they're coming at this with the idea that, well, we're progressives also, and therefore we don't have any problem with Rashida Tlaib or AOC or anybody else. And, and it's going to be too late, I think, you know, if and when they finally figure out uh, that they were completely wrong. Yeah, look, I think the, uh, 
the progressives understand something that the opponents of the progressives, us, do not, which is they understand that ultimately a nation is, a, is an accumulation of values and cultural and civilizational commonalities. And a foundation, a pillar of that in the West is the Judeo-Christian uh, foundations of the United States. You don't need to go further than the pilgrims. I mean, I could go back and cite British law and so on and so forth, but the United States was founded as the New Jerusalem. Right. It was called that, and Hebrew almost became uh, a national language here, and Ben Franklin wanted that. Also wanted the turkey as our national bird, but that, we'll talk about that <laughs> later. But at any rate, the, the, the point is that there has been since the foundation of America this belief that it is the new Israel, the new right. the, the old Israel matters, the Judeo-Christian foundation matters. What the progressives are doing in foreign policy with Israel, and the progressives control Middle East foreign policy, is the same thing they did in the summer of 2020, tear down statues and burn symbols of American power. It's destroying the history, the common foundation that unites us as one people. So for them, the destruction of the Judeo-Christian core is a sine qua non of the destruction of the sort of America that they see and, 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 and want to destroy. So no, no way in which Israel can emerge from that sort of an outlook without being a mortal enemy of the progressives. And it will, they will not rest until Israel no longer exists. So there is no coming to terms with them. Well, I, think is, that, uh, I think that we're gonna- have, struggle. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's why this government in the United States, the administration and the government in Israel that's now now controlling uh, the levers of power here are both uh, threats to, to the to the to the very nature and to the very existence of our countries. And so, I think that you know um, you're already seeing it was actually quite quite profound. I thought uh, a friend of mine sent me uh, the Facebook um, post that Bennett put up on the official page of the Prime Minister of Israel um, uh, about uh, the attacks in 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 Bnei Brak where five people were killed. And um, he said there, and, and whatever he said there, you know, condolences, we're gonna fight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but when I looked at it this morning after, after my, my colleague sent it to me, I saw that there were 900 comments. And so I just looked at them uh, to see what they were like. And I wouldn't say that I read all 900, but I, I, I you know, I, I, uh, I just sort of leafed through, uh, you know, several hundred, and they were all negative. All of them were calling for him to leave, all of them. There was not one there that was supportive of him, not one. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, this is a prime minister who has the support of less than 5% of the public. And, um, you know, and I, I don't know that in, in and, and obviously the, the Iranian nuclear threat is an existential threat, but when the streets streets when jewish blood is again flowing in the streets of israel and you have everybody over the age of 35 uh, is still you know suffering from ptsd from the palestinian terror war in the in the early in the early years of this century you know from 2000 to 2004 2005 um, i don't think i think that this government is going to have a very hard time uh, uh, not not uh, responding, and it, it won't respond. It can't because of the way that it's built, because of of its members, its composition. Um, and I think that uh, it won't be 
four years before we see new elections in Israel. I think it will be much faster. Well, I think the current events, and sadly, I, I'm sure that what we've seen in the last few days is only the beginning of an attempted escalation. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd expect worse in the days to come, maybe not successful, but worse attempts, and, and it could lead very well to another, you know, another war. Mean, this, this weakness breeds aggression. It invites aggression, and we're very well, this, weak leads, this leaves this government in a very difficult place. If it had any legitimacy before, it doesn't have any legitimacy afterwards. The foundation of, of its, it's a caretaker government. Uh, essentially, uh, it doesn't really have a purpose other than just be a government uh, to, to, to maintain the autopilot functions of the state. But the state doesn't have, it's, it's encountering a thunderstorm. It can't stay on autopilot now. So I think the purpose of the government is undermined. And moreover, the uh, founding animus of, uh, of, of, the, of the formation of the coalition, which is to deny any entry of Bibi Netanyahu into the government, that at some point people have to ask themselves, is that more important than halting terror? Because having Guns as a defense minister, having Barlev as, a, as a, 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 in charge of the police, having uh, various things in charge by uh, Zandberg and so forth. I, we could go on for hours also about the damage done to Israel with the Arab partners, with the environmental policy and blocking the UAE pipeline and so forth uh, because of environmental concerns and so on. The damage being done by this government and in in, in the fundamentals of Israeli security needs and strategic needs is now becoming acute. I agree. I, I, think, I, I think we saw that very clearly in, in the Negev summit, and I think we saw it in the Sharm el-Sheikh summit, and I think we're seeing it on the streets of Israel. Um, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you. I think that you, know, you bring so much um, wisdom to the discussion, and uh, I thank you so much for doing it on essentially zero notice, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to cap it off here. And uh, I think that we should have a separate discussion about uh, what, uh, what the merits uh, ministers of environmental protection and energy are doing uh, to, to the, uh, to Israel's energy independence and its, and its strategic posture, but that'll be for another day. In the meantime, uh, I am, I want to round it off just by saying, um, you know, make sure that you share this uh, discussion with all of your friends and nodding acquaintances and relatives. And uh, we're over 4,000 subscriptions and uh, we should try to get past that. We're at 45. I think this is the episode number 45. I want by the time that we get to 100 to be over 10,000. So subscribe, get everybody, you know, to subscribe and share because this information is information you're not going to get anywhere else and is absolutely essential for anybody who cares about the Middle East, for anybody who cares about Israel, and I dare for, say for anyone who cares about the United States. So thank you again, David, and thank all of you. Thank you.